Matthew chapter 5, we'll start at verse 1 through verse 7. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Be seated. Last week we took a look at the first three Beatitudes of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. And today we'll take a look at the fourth and fifth of those Beatitudes. One of the things we ought to note, there is a certain continuity uh, in these blessings that Jesus gives. We're going to concentrate today on blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, and blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But it's out of the depth of one's sense of spiritual poverty that is poor in spirit and mourning over our own sins and the sins of others that cause so much turmoil and who are meek, and the word meek means to be humble, who out of that mindset people cry out to God to be filled by him. And so there's that relationship then, you see, between these blessings. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus said, will be satisfied. Not maybe, they will be satisfied. There are two ways in which then uh, this is accomplished in men's life. First, by obtaining that righteousness of God that comes only through believing in Jesus Christ and then having, as a result of that faith, having the righteousness of Christ imputed or accredited to us. The other way in hungering and thirsting after righteousness is created in the heart of those people who are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when you're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is natural then to have a desire for holiness of life. So that's, that's how those who hunger and thirst after righteousness were going to be satisfied. Being brought to Jesus in the first place, and then once having been brought to Jesus, there's this desire to want to know more of Jesus, to grow in holiness of life, to see it manifest as fruit in your life. <clears throat> so let's, let's break this down in this fourth beatitude of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, this aspect that <clears throat> of hungering for righteousness, leading somebody to faith in Christ. Uh, today, we are going to take a look at uh, quite a few passages, like I always like to do, to try to, to give us that whole sense of what the Scripture says. And uh, it's a very straightforward comment by Jesus. Uh, what does it really mean to hunger and thirst? So we're going to take a look at some passages. And the first one that I want us to, to turn to is Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55, verses one and two, this wonderful promise of the prophet. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. You know, one of, this, one of the great promises here that's given by, by the Lord through his prophet is how glorious it is to hunger and thirst for God. That's what it is. It's a hunger and thirst for him 
of such magnitude, he says, when you hunger and thirst, you're going to be quenched. There's that satisfaction. Remember, Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you're going to be satisfied. Here the prophet talks about uh, this, <clears throat> those who thirst after the waters. And the amazing thing here is, what it's teaching is, anybody can have it. It's not restricted by virtue of how much money you have. If you don't have any money, he says, come. Come buy the best, the wine and the milk. It's free. It's free to all those who want it. But you've got to want it. What this is clearly teaching us is that this salvation is not of any works that you and I should boast. It's free of charge. And so you see just how tragic it is when people don't thirst, don't come. Whose fault is that? Is it God's fault? It's not God's fault. It's our fault. It's free. Take it. And yet so many refuse to come who don't thirst. It's their fault that they will perish. And so this this teaches that God's favor to us, that which he gives to us, is something that we don't earn. Uh, turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 4. This is brought out, of course, in Paul's remembering of, of Abraham. So we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What then shall we say, that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to those who work, his wage is not reckoned as a failure, as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Remember, when Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you're going to be filled. You've got to thirst after it. And, and this believing in the promise, and that's what Abraham did. All that he did was believe the promise that God gave to him. That in, through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And he told him, look at the stars. Though you don't see it now, this is how it will be. And all that the scripture says is that Abraham believed it. And as a result of believing the promise, he receives Righteousness. It's accounted to him as righteousness. This clearly teaches that righteousness is imputed to us. It's credited to us by simple faith in Christ, in the promise that Christ gives us. That's why we must always resist any theology that wants to make salvation works-oriented. He says it's not of works. If it were of works, Abraham would have to have done something to earn it. But he didn't do anything to earn it. All he did was believe the promise. Jesus had a wonderful encounter. At least it's a wonderful encounter for her, the Samaritan woman, on his way. We, we talked about when Jesus, uh, on his way from Judea uh, to Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria. Remember, we were, told, we were studying through Matthew Remember, Jesus, after his baptism, will maybe for a year possibly minister in Judea, but then he and the disciples that he chose will go with him to Galilee. On his way to Galilee and passing through Samaria, they stop at the famous well of Jacob in Samaria. Turn with me to John 4. And let's start reading at verse 7 down through verse 15. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank it of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of this water that I shall give him, shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Here then is a wonderful encounter of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. She doesn't fully understand all the magnitude of what Jesus is saying, but she will soon, if you read the rest of the chapter, I'll leave that to you to read the rest of chapter 4. But he obviously creates in her, using Jacob's well in this analogy, that this is physical water, but Jesus is talking about a water that you drink that you'll never have to drink again. Obviously creating this curiosity in the mind of the Samaritan woman. Well, I'd sure like to have some of that water, Jesus. But she's still sort of thinking about physical water. But she's no longer thinking about spiritual, I mean physical water. When Jesus starts talking about her five husbands. And she says, now she's thinking, no, wait a minute. How do you know this? And then he builds up to the, the, the great climactic point. And he says, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? And then he, Jesus said to her, and she starts talking. She talks in verse 25 about the Messiah. He says, sure, you're not the Messiah. Who is? So the Messiah says who is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he'll declare us all things. And Jesus says to her, I am he who is speaking to you. Now, that really gets home to her, because what has he already done? Told her about her former way of life. She goes into the town and brings back a bunch of people. And from our text, it says that she says, I have found him, the Messiah. I mean, she's become already convinced. But just in that encounter. Now, one thing about this, and there's every indication in this encounter because as a result of that, some of these people believed in Jesus. And you have to say that one of them was a Samaritan woman. And here is this thirsting. She, there's this desire for this living water. She wanted this living water. So Jesus tells her how to get this living water. Turn with me to John 6, verse 35. Jesus is talking to a crowd of which he has spoken to. And he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, what did Jesus in the Beatitudes say? He says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And here he's saying, everyone who comes to me will never be hungry, and everyone who believes in me shall never thirst. Turn over with me to John 7. Take a look at verses 37 and 38. Now, on the... The last day, the great day of the feast, 
Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. So it's clear from here that Jesus is saying that that the righteousness that we possess can only be found in trusting in him. But it does indicate that there is a hunger for it. There's a thirsting for it. We see the Apostle Paul when he went into the great city of Athens and he has an encounter with the philosophers and um, they have this altar to the unknown God. They had altars to everything. And, and, and Paul just simply takes off of this altar to the unknown God and says, I'm going to tell you who this unknown God is. It's the true God. He talks about how people have, have longed to be, viewed themselves as offspring of God. And he enlightens them with the truth of Scripture that even though these philosophers, the Stoics and the uh, Epicureans, did not believe in a life after death, which they did not, and they believed that they were the masters of their own destiny, Jesus, I mean, Paul says to them, No, I declare to you that this man Jesus, whom God has raised from the dead, see, he didn't matter to them, they just told him, We don't believe in that. Well, so what? He just told them the truth. This man, whom God raised from the dead, I declare to you, he shall judge you on that great day. There is something uh, in, among men. Now, let's, let's understand this. We already know from Scripture, have we not seen from Isaiah, that it says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And it says, and no one arouses themselves to take hold of thee. So why does Jesus talk about those hungering and thirsting after righteousness and being satisfied who don't know him? See, the reality is this. God creates that in the person, the hunger and thirst. And so, I mean, if anything, there is a certain encouragement that we have when people are curious. Why are they curious? Does it automatically mean that uh, everyone who's curious is going to come to Christ, but the fact that they are curious, or someone wants a meaning in life? <laughs> Me. I was one of those. I was one of those who had no meaning in life, but I wanted it. I was still in unbelief. But I wanted meaning. But I didn't know where to find it until someone came and told me about Jesus. So in one sense, I was thirsting after a righteousness I did not know. And that's how God works. That is how God works often in people to bring them to saving faith. Is that he puts them in a position to be under the preaching of the word of God. There's something going on in their life, and uh, they want better. They want happiness. They, they want meaning. They just don't know where to find it. But if you hunger after me, uh, you'll be satisfied. Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah 29:13. He says, everyone who seeks after me shall find me. If you seek after me, you'll find me. So it's quite clear here that by faith in Christ, uh, we do not pursue our own righteousness. Let me just draw our attention to, to Romans 9. Again, it's, it's not something that we create ourselves. Look at Romans 9, verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness? Even the righteousness which is not by which is by faith, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. 
Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Everyone who hungers and thirsts after righteousness shall be satisfied. The Jews sought it by works righteousness, and they did not get it. The Gentiles, who did not have the law, but when they heard the preaching of Jesus, and you could have it all by faith, they obtained it. But in some sense, um, there had to be that desire, that thirsting. But you see, some can pursue it the wrong way. And the Jews, for the most part, pursued it the wrong way. Brethren, external, one thing is clear as you go through the scriptures with reference to the Jews, Pharisees, the scribes. External religiosity doesn't cut it, now does it? I mean, that's again, that's the whole story of the, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector that I've referred to several times in past messages in Luke 18. The attitude that I can do it myself, that I am self-righteous, that I do, I tithe and I give uh, uh, to the poor, and I uh, keep the Sabbath, and I do all these things externally. Jesus said that person was proud, was he not? That's the whole point, as opposed to the man who was poor in spirit, who said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That man went away justified, not the self-righteous Pharisee. Now, it's one thing. To come to saving faith to the Lord Jesus by hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And that hungering and thirsting after righteousness, let's get it clear before we move on, is believing only in Jesus. That is the only way that you're going to get that righteousness. But once you've come to Jesus, there is another type of hungering and thirsting after righteousness that we need to take a look at now. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 6 through 9. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, straightforward, this tells us, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life, you're not a Christian. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to him, he said. Now, what's the evidence that you have the Spirit? That's the next question. You have a delight in what? The law of God. The things of the Lord. The commandments of God. Before, people were hostile to the law of God. But if you got the Spirit, you're no longer hostile to the law of God. You want to keep the commandments. You know, that's why 1 John says, in 1 John chapter 5, says that the commandments are of God are not burdensome to those of God. They're not burdensome. The only people to whom the commandments are burdensome to are those who are trying to use the commandments to work their way up to please God. Then it is a burden. To try to keep the commandments of God in the flesh is a serious burden. You know why it's a serious burden? Because you don't have the Spirit helping you to keep them. That's why it's a burden. And you're in this hopeless state. It is a hopeless state. If, if that is how a person thinks they're going to find God, by doing that of their own ability. So it's clear here that when the Spirit of God is in your life, you have a desire of, for things of the law of God. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 
1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, what's the presupposition here? If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, what's going to be true of you? You're, if you're like a newborn babe. Do you have to teach a baby to desire its mother's milk? Do you have to teach that? Not really, do you? All, all of God's creatures, all mammals, that is, instinctively desire the mother's milk. You don't have to teach it. So why the analogy here is, if you have tasted the kindness of God, meaning, essentially, you've come to saving faith, the evidence is, you long for the pure milk of the Word. No one has to... Let's put it this way. No one should have to drag you to church. No one should have to drag you or try to, to get you to read the Bible on a regular basis. You should want to. Why? Because you have the Spirit in you. You have, been, you have tasted the kindness of God. That's one of the sure signs that someone is a Christian. Now, the, the, the parable of the sower and the seed enlightens us that sometimes some people can receive the word uh, with great joy, but they have shallow root, and there the parable of the sower comes in, and it's not true faith. But one of the, sure, one of the surest signs is a desire for the word of God. So, you know, when it talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus is in you? How would I examine myself? How would I test myself? Well, I'll tell you one of the, the best ways to examine yourself. To what extent am I in the Word of God? Absolutely. See, you don't, again, you don't have to teach a baby to desire milk. You should not have to convince a Christian to want to read the Bible. You shouldn't have to convince a Christian to want to go to church to hear the preaching of the Word. You shouldn't uh, have to uh, convince them that uh, they ought to hang around the right people we're talking about who want to fellowship with other Christians. It just goes with the territory. And it's one of the surest signs that you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. And so, in this regard, you got to ask yourself, just how much desire desire? Now, it is true. Uh, there are certain levels. I, I, of desiring the scriptures. I remember talking with someone once who uh, told me they were talking about, uh, I thought they were in unbelief. They talked about how they talked, came to Christ. And I said, well, good. Let's get together for a Bible study. And they said, well, they began to vacillate. Immediately the red flag went up. Immediately the red flag went up. You don't want to study the Bible? I thought you just told me you came to Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit will guide you in all truth, Jesus says. The Spirit longs for the pure milk of the Word. So, again, this shouldn't be that extraordinary uh, difficulty in wanting to read the, the Scriptures, to commune with God. I found it natural in my own life. I saw others who professed Christ and who had no concern for the Bible, and all of a sudden they have a great interest in wanting to study the Bible. Well, of course. You've been born again of God. That's why you have a desire. 
So, why is it then the case that a genuine Christian is the one who hungers and thirsts for these things? It's because the Spirit yearns for the things of God. The thing, the Spirit of God yearns for fellowship with God. Turn with me to Psalm 42. Look at verses 1 through 4. It's great imagery here. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they said to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Now here, this is in a context of David and, and, and his whole life. Of course, we know what God says about David. It says he was the man after God's own heart. By the way, that is the assessment of God about David after David has died. Considering the great sins of David, of adultery and murder. The final one, here, when he says, I used to go along in the throngs in the procession to the house of God with a voice of thanksgiving. You know, what happens, sin in the life of Christians just breaks off that fellowship with God, and the joy is missing. You can read the Psalms when David repents, or he's in the process of repenting, he says, Restore to me what? The joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. But this whole attitude, and he expre- it, this expresses basically the heart of David, his soul pants for the living God as a deer pants for water. You don't, you should, it goes with the territory of being Christian to desire the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to want to go to the Lord in prayer, to commune with God. It's just natural. Remember, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Turn with me to Psalm 27. Verse 8, when thou didst say, seek my face, my heart said to thee, thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. Expressing the real heart for God that was in the psalmist. Expressing the heart of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. God says, seek my face, my My heart says, I will seek thy face. How do we seek God's face? Personal devotions, family devotions, uh, reading of the word personally, uh, fellowship of the saints, church services where we read, hear the word preached, taught. That's how we seek his face. Our heart should long for it. Turn with me to Psalm 105, verse 4. Psalm 105, verse 4. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. Then it says, verse 5, Remember His wonders which He has done, His marvels and the judgments uttered by His mouth. What did Jesus say? Hunger and thirst, all those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be satisfied. And so the question we have to ask before we move on to the fifth beatitude again is, Do I really and truly have a heart for God that yearns after the Word of God and every context where that Word can be uh, ministered to? That's what I have to ask myself. And in our most sober moments, if we find ourselves wanting, we have to say, why? Why do I have not this desire? It could be that all our religion has been external. It could be that. Or, 
We could still be a babe in Christ, and we failed to realize we were created to have fellowship with Him. And therefore, as the newborn babe desires the milk, we desire the pure milk of the Word of God. Well, what about when Jesus said in his, the fifth beatitude, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, this is one... Uh, this is one aspect where the dispenser of, so, of something becomes the recipient of that which they dispense. He who shows mercy will be shown mercy. And so this is a very key trait to the Christian life. And here's why it's a key trait to the Christian life. This is how we enter the Christian life, right? It's by mercy. We know we don't deserve it. And like the, the publican who cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. This is how the poor in spirit come into the kingdom of God. They understand God must show mercy or they will never be saved. And that's why it's so important. Jesus says, all those who show mercy... They'll receive mercy. If there's anyone in the whole world who should understand mercy, it's the Christian, right? Because they've been shown this mercy. And what is this mercy? How does it manifest itself in our lives? Well, one way is this. It's a love for those in misery or in distress. It shows a love for those who are going through hard times. And so showing mercy oftentimes is translated in the New Testament as compassion. It's the same Greek word. And so when we, uh, ha- our heart goes out for those who are in a pitiful shape, for example, what you mentioned earlier about someone doesn't even have furniture and things like this, If we hear about those, and especially if they're the household of faith, our hearts should go out to those people to have mercy, compassion. Also, it is a forgiving spirit. It doesn't unbiblically judge others. I said unbiblically judge others. Uh, It doesn't hold grudges. The person who uh, understands mercy doesn't hold grudges. They have a forgiving spirit. So being merciful is being kind and thinking of how to minister to others. That's one aspect of being merciful, of being compassionate. Again, remember what Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or, you can say compassion. They shall be compassionately dealt with by their God. Turn with me, taking a look at that aspect, turn with me to Psalm 41, verses 1 and 2. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. That's saying exactly what Jesus has said. How blessed is the man who considers the helpless. The one who considers the helpless is a merciful person. Turn with me to Proverbs 11. Look at verse 25. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He himself waters, will himself be watered. Take a look at Psalm 18, verses 24 and 25. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands and his eyes. With the kind that thou dost show thyself kind, With the blameless, 
thou dost show thyself blameless. The Lord recompenses us. That means credits us in accordance with how we deal with other people. Take a look at Proverbs, turn to Proverbs 19.17. He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Wow, that's an interesting passage, isn't it? When, when we help those in distress, we're actually lending, as it were, money to God at the time. And it says, in other words, God doesn't forget it. That's the point. God doesn't forget it. He, he remembers it. He notes it. And what is the promise? He will repay him for his good deed. In Acts 20, verse 25, uh, Acts 20, verse 35, uh, we, we read the Apostle Paul saying this. And actually, this is the only place we know of this, but it's never said directly by Jesus. But since Paul says Jesus said it, we have to say he said it. Acts 20, look at verse 35. In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. The reason we're looking at taking a look at all these passages, I'm just showing you, just how many passages are teaching that Jesus said in the Beatitude, He that's merciful, he who shows mercy, will be shown mercy. Second Timothy 1, verses 15-18. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelius and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anisiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Paul, when he was in prison, because of his imprisonment, there were some who were ashamed to be identified with Paul and would not come to him and, and would not minister to him for whatever reason. He said everybody virtually had forsook him, except Onesiphorus. And look at how great Onesiphorus was. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. He was willing to stand up for that which was true. And it, when he was in Rome, he was determined to find Paul in the great city of Rome. And it says, he searched for me until he found me. And what is Paul saying should be done to Onesiphorus? May the, the Lord grant to him to find mercy on that great day. What day is that? The great day of judgment. May the Lord bless Onesiphorus for all the kindness, the mercy he showed to me, the apostle. In fact, that is the very nature of that great day of judgment. I'm not going to get to it the whole lot or I'll not have to preach on Matthew 25 when I get there. But turn to Matthew 25 and look at verses 34 and 35. Now, Jesus, this is, a, this is a, what the day of judgment is going to be like. Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to gather all the nations, everybody who's ever lived in the history of man. The sheep are going to be on the right, the goats are on the left. And this is what Jesus will say. He says <clears throat> to the righteous, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed, of my Father, get that, who are blessed, the Beatitudes, come to me, he says, those 
who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. In prison, and you came to me. Brethren, every single one of those is showing mercy, is it not? Showing compassion, which is translated as mercy. Everything that the Lord Jesus will commend Christians for on the day of judgment is going to be the acts of mercy they showed to others. Wow. (laughs) See how important that is? So when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, how dynamic that is, because that's going to be the very nature of the judgment day. Everybody who is a believer in Jesus, their lives are changed. And what is one of the great manifestations that that you and I belong to Jesus? We are concerned about other people. That's why John says, how can you say you love God if you see your brother in need, physical need, and you don't do anything about it? It doesn't make sense. No, everybody who's going to be shown mercy on that day, and remember, that's what Paul said, Lord, show mercy to Anisiphorus, because he surely showed mercy to me, but all others kind of forsook me. You can call it this. You can call it the kingdom law of reciprocity. (laughs) That's a fancy word. The kingdom law of reciprocity, meaning the Lord returns to us in proportion. That's being reciprocity, reciprocate. The Lord will return to us in proportion to what we have dealt out to others. That's why we can call it the law of reciprocity. A couple last passages. James 2, verse 13. James chapter 2, verse 13. Talking about that law of reciprocity, we get in proportion to what we do to others. Well, there's a converse of that which is true, and here it is. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. I love this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs. Over judgment. And without getting into the specifics of Matthew 18, that I'll leave till we get to Matthew 18, the whole parable of the uh, unforgiving servant, the one in memory was forgiven, <laughs> the $10 million debt, <clears throat> and yet goes out and grabs somebody who owes him uh, a day's wage and demands the guy to give it to him. When the king forgave him of an unforgivable debt, remember, there was no way this guy could pay that back. It was 10 million days of wages. (laughs) There's no way he's going to pay it back. He was shown mercy. And yet he did not show mercy to the guy who owned him one day's work. And when the word got back, remember, this is a parable, when the king finds out about it, he says, well, bring him back in here. I'll change my mind, throw him in prison until he pays everything, which means it's never going to happen to get out. And it all ends with Jesus saying, if you're not willing to forgive others, then neither will God forgive you. See, that's a part of mercy as well. So, in these Beatitudes, let's tie this together today. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You've got to be poor in spirit. You've got to see your need for Christ. You've got to want to have the Lord in your life. And if you, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me, you will find me. And if you really have been born again of God, you will bear the fruit of obedience to the commandments of God. Though not perfectly, because you're still a sinner. But at least the heart is there. That's why David says... I treasure thy commandments. They are the joy of my heart. 
Thy words, uh, the psalmist says, thy words are like a honeycomb to me. Oh, that wonderful analogy. If you hunger and thirst, he will fill you. You know, so many people, even among professing Christians, who maybe are not walking the way that they should. Remember, we were created to have fellowship with God. We were created to commune with the living God. We were made in his image. Therefore, being made in his image, we have this innate longing to be with God. Though Pascal's philosophy at points was wanting, he's well known for saying there is an emptiness in every man's heart that cannot be filled without God. And it's true. We were made to have fellowship with him. And this is why in this conference coming up, I got to try to convey just how deplorable it is to think that we evolved from lower forms of life and that they twist the image of God to mean just communing. God conscious? God conscious? I don't think so. We are different than all other life forms. The Bible says we were created a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8 says. We are different. We were made to long for God. Therefore, how much do you pant after the waters like a deer? Do you love the Word of God? Until you give yourself fully to it, you will not feel, uh, experience the fullness of life. The most meaningful person, the person who has the greatest joy in life, is the person who can't get enough of the Word of God, and likewise is the person who shows mercy. There it is. Let's ask the Lord to give us those things. Let us pray.